Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jake Wamala, full-time MBA, class of 2019, recent grad. Actually, it's been a year, huh? Exactly. We have one class underneath. That's so funny. How's it going, Jake? Things are going well. Lots going on in the world, but super fortunate. I'm healthy, so don't take those things for granted as much anymore. Can you first, just since our guests can't see this video, tell us what your shirt says? Yeah, my shirt says, Menace Hate Mas Pereo. And it's a little bit of Spanish and the hate is obviously in English, but it means less hate and more dancing. It's like dirty dancing and it's referencing reggaeton. So I like the message, so I wear it. I'll tell our listeners how I know you. Jake was the president of the Investment Management Club. And that fall when you were president, I was organizing the LA, I was doing investment banking, going down that track, organizing the LA investment banking track. And so we had our connections through finance club, really. But aside from that, I've been slowly learning about you, but really love to hear your origin story, as I like to call it. Yeah, absolutely. I can share a little bit more about myself. And then also a little bit what led me to Haas and be so passionate about what I would describe as my two most important passions are investing, specifically learning about businesses. And then the second one is giving back. I think that's extremely important. But I'm from the Boston area. I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, an old industrial town on the East Coast. And there, actually, my mother was an artist and my father was an engineer. So I've always had two sides of the household in terms of the more math and science, but then some of the liberal arts and the curved lines, so to speak. What's also interesting is one of my first exposures to finance is when I had an unfortunate event happen where my father lost all our family's money in the stock market during the early 2000s, during a semiconductor cycle. That's what he studied, got in trouble with some leverage, and went overboard in that sense. I would describe him almost as a Robin Hood trader 1.0, you know, (laughs) (laughs) before before we have where we are today. I think that was a defining experience for me because I was wondering how such a smart person could lose all this money so quickly or get into some trouble. So I've always been interested in businesses. So I followed down that path. I was fortunate enough to get into MIT for undergrad, where I studied mechanical engineering and economics, and then took my career towards to Wall Street in New York, where I was at Morgan Stanley. After a couple of other uh, steps and places, like for example, private equity or growth equity, some venture capital, and even independent consulting, working with hedge funds, investment firms in the Bay Area, I got to a really good understanding of finance and investing and how capital markets operate. But I really wanted to get back to investing, especially in the public markets, which is something I've always wanted to do. But I wanted to build up a skill set, a business acumen, a really reliable tool set to not only be able to invest and understand companies, but also understand the risks associated with it. So I applied to business school and that led me to Haas. It was one of the schools I researched. And the more I researched it, the more I fell in love with the school. There are four defining principles. If I had a quiz and you asked me what they are, it's a uh, question of the status quo, mm-hmm. one of my favorites, confidence without attitude, Yep. student always, mm-hmm. and be on yourself. There you go. <laughs> so exactly, right? So, oh, okay, I'm only one year out. I'm only one year <laughs> out. <laughs> it's going to get rusty from here on going forward. Those kind of tell you a lot about not only the culture of the school, but the students that it attracts, the faculties, the professors, and the fact that they're such data-driven in the sense of making decisions based on what you see, but then also 
not being so entrenched in we're going to do this because we've always done it this way and being a little bit more intellectually honest. At business school, like you mentioned, was getting involved in a lot of the finance activities, whether that was investment club, pitch competitions, doing internships, et cetera, even doing peer advising and helping other classmates who wanted to do investing or running a speaker series to bring people in the investment community in the Bay Area into class or on campus. So those are some of the things that I definitely enjoyed. So I think that gives you a good sense of a little bit of the background, especially from a career standpoint, to get me to where I am today. And right now I'm working at Aristotle Capital Management down here in Los Angeles, where of course the weather's beautiful, but I'm also working at, at a great company that really, I think, values me bringing my whole self to work. And then is also really astute investors and have been a fantastic track record, the way they can do business and think about businesses. And then I get to add value on the research team, mostly right now covering what I describe as communication services. Think social media, traditional media, advertisement, PR firm, and entertainment. Got it. I'm personally curious, based on your exposure between private and public markets, what, what does it draw public markets to you? Because typically, post-MBA, everyone's trying to go over to private, right? That's a great question. And that, that's one you'll get, is, especially if you're in interviews in the space, like, why do you want to do this? Because it seems to attract people who are really passionate about it. And those people tend to have the longest careers in the public investing space where the scoreboard isn't always so clear. And you think it's more of a meritocracy than it is, but it's very hard to find out if you're a good investor until 20 years down the road, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But having an insatiable curiosity definitely helps. But for me, I really loved the liquidity. I think that's a piece that's a big part of it. So because of that, you have the ability to think about businesses, to hold them accountable also in the public markets because you have a stock price that trades on a more regular basis. Private equity, which has its appeal, and I do enjoy that aspect of the businesses and almost would describe a lot of our strategy here at Aristotle isn't playing the quarters, right? I'm not trying to guess if EPS is going to get beat by a penny or something like that, which would be a very more stressful type of job than the one I had today. But the reality is you get to keep the companies accountable. You can make decisions based on publicly available information, think long-term strategy and value creation. And these are the biggest businesses in the world that eventually have the biggest impact. So I found that to be extremely attractive. To talk a little bit more about Aristotle, we invest in some of the biggest businesses, not just in the US globally. Think globally is one of our big tenants which I also appreciate. And I think the Haas experience cultivated that as well since I got to travel to a plethora of new countries. Let's talk a little bit about something that you brought up before, equity fluent leadership. What does that mean? And did I even get that right? You nailed it, actually. And that's a term I first heard at Berkeley Haas. And a fantastic professor, Kaylee McElhaney, I believe she coined the phrase. If not, it should be attributed to her because uh, haven't heard it widely used and probably should be used in all business school landscapes. And that's what we really should strive to, to create, right? Equity fluent leaders. And I think given the kind of sociopolitical landscape today, given Black Lives Matter, the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Eric Gardner, et cetera, the names and the list goes on and on related to police brutality and institutional racism that's been around in the U.S. But being cognizant of the differences as opposed to pretending they don't exist, is I think where we're going to as not just a society, but businesses as well. Where previously, I think, and maybe even generations ago, people looked at 
institutions and businesses as very separate, almost like church and state, where they're baseless names that don't have as much influence on the world and your moral compass only impacts you personally and the day-to-day interactions. Like, suddenly he's a great person, right? So there's no issues there. He's doing a great job. But where he works is just a job or what school he attends is just the school. It doesn't have a really impact on people and the society and where we go. But I think people are more and more aware of the institutional impact. And which is unique about Berkeley is they're the largest mobilizer for economic social class movement in California. And what that means is people who move from the bottom quartile of earnings to upper quartile. So which obviously in the US, we're fortunate to have that type of American dream or build than in certain other countries where you might be born like the Brazil slums or maybe India or something where it's going to be much more difficult to have that kind of socioeconomical mobility. Again, Berkeley, public institution, very much big on that. And I think MIT is actually very similar on the East Coast as well, which I think also, again, why I was attracted to some of those schools where they just really empower you to think different and just go for it. Kind of circling back to your question in terms of equity, fluent leadership and what that means is it's being more aware of the differences and accepting those as positives. Because I think a lot of the times, You'll see it all the time, right? Especially investment banking. They're like, if you want to be a good fit, you're going to have this cookie cutter mold, wear this certain suit and tie, you're going to have to have this certain haircut and carry yourself a certain way. And then it's just a cocktail machine. But the reality is for you to be great or have a great institution or a great team, you need not only just a diversity of ideas, which I think is sometimes used as a crutch to mask homogeneity. But if you really think about it, you can have a difference of ideas and thoughts only if people have different lived experiences. So if someone's a different race, someone's a different gender, right? Someone's a different age, someone's different, you name it. So I think those things are much more appreciated and I gain even greater appreciation learning about that and being able to speak about it. You just made me realize something. I mean, that is the systemic issue, right? Is that the homogeneity of, let's say, investment banking is that way because they're like, oh, well, our clients are also homogenous right? <laughs> and, and so this is why we got to conform to fit the mold of our clientele but i think as we're thinking about how to tackle some of these problems if the clientele you know the leadership of the companies that investment banks represent is becoming more diverse then they have to also be more diverse i mean they should be diverse to start with either way but then they they can't crutch as you're saying like on that excuse that like we're trying to fit a mold of what our clients expect us to be when there is no diversity <laughs> in, in the leadership structure of your clientele even. And then to take that one step further, that's I see now why, like for you, the appeal of public markets is how can you help in one way, shape, or form influence the public corporations out there, hold them accountable to be more diverse, to have more diverse leadership. And then in its effect, have a ripple effect, not only within the organization, but outside of the organization as well. I think that's where it's got to start. I mean, empathy has got to be where you come from first on a lot of these, I would say, charge issues or charge problems, because you're going to be uncovering people's blind spots. And it's, everyone's going to have a different reaction to things they didn't know. And then some people are not fond of changing their opinion or viewpoint with after presented new information. So 
definitely recommend go just go for it, right? And I think you hit it on a great point is that these institutions or leaders, et cetera, are becoming more diverse. I think there's been a little bit more of a societal pressure, but the reality is their customers have always been diverse. If you want to understand what your customers wants and needs, you're going to need their voices. You learn this first thing in entrepreneurship, right? A-B test, the, the best feedback you can get isn't from your investor or friend, it's the customer, right? <laughs> if the customer says, I want a, you know, 140 characters on Twitter or I want less or I want more, you've got to listen to that voice, right? Before you listen to anybody else's. So I think that's like got to be key. And people are starting to really understand and understand what I would describe as the business case for diversity and you know, investing women, et cetera, which Berkeley has been, in my viewpoint, far and ahead on these issues. Yeah. No, it's funny you just brought that up because that just made me think about even our VC class that I just took this past fall. A friend of mine, a fellow student, she brought up how you know all the cases were male-centric and how even though that's a status quo prior, for especially for private equity, venture capital, it, it is predominantly white male. <laughs> and that's just a, that's the reality of it. I don't even know if that's the right word, but that is the reality of it. But why do we keep perpetuating that reality? And as even as a male, I don't pay as much attention to that because I'm just like, okay, that seems normal to me. But then when she brought it up, because she approached me about it, asking if she should send the professors an email. And I was like, 100%. And she sent me the, the email she wanted to draft. And I looked it over and helped her out. And the professors not only were so open to her email, but they gave her the floor for 30 minutes to talk about it, to have the whole class talk about how can we get more diversity and venture capital. And I thought that was just amazing. And to that effect, the professor, in the cases that he wrote, he stated that he even picks gender neutral names just so that it could go either way, that the characters in the story can go either way. And so it, it, you're definitely right. Like Haas is very forward thinking and very conscious. I mean, we can always do better, but Haas is very self-aware uh, to a certain extent about how important these issues are to address. I completely agree. I think we still have a long ways to go, but we're definitely moving in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about how you're only a year out as an alumni, but you're already doing so much to give back, not only to the Haas community, but the community at large. Can you share with us some of the things that you're doing and working on so that other alumni can be inspired to do the same? Yeah. So like I mentioned, something I'm very passionate about is giving back. I think where that comes from for me is that I kind of had a non-traditional background and upbringing. I very much believe that the community I was in helped provide the foundation for me, not only to receive opportunities, but take advantage of opportunities when they presented themselves. And I, that is just absolutely not lost on me that so many people helped me along the way. I mean, I think of organizations like MLT, which is called Management Leadership for Tomorrow. That's a national organization that helps black and brown students, younger folk who are interested in business, understand what it takes to relatively be successful in business, whether that's introducing them to companies, helping with their resumes, exposing them to different industries, taking personality tests to figure out would you be good at sales? Would you enjoy it? What is sales, right? And that just went such a long way. And I, I did that program when I was an undergrad, through the career prep. I did that program again, 
applying to grad school called MBA prep, and they have a professional development program. And now I serve actually on the local alumni chapter here in LA. And that's one of the nonprofits that I'm super passionate about and getting involved in. And just as like a Berkeley alum, I'm also getting involved there. Good examples of that would be serving on that kind of alumni leadership council there as well. Yeah. <laughs> With Liz and... Uh, Tenny. Ten, yeah, Tenny and Molly. So great people and super personable. But I guess what I would say for alumni, there's so many ways to give back that we don't think about. Obviously, the first one, which you'll get calls about, I don't need to tell you this, <laughs> but <laughs> you can always give back financially, right? You can always write a check. And that's a huge part of endowments, right, is your alumni contribution. And that helps keep the wheels going for the institution that's a mobilizer for so many people, including ourselves, right? Growing either personally, professionally, make contacts that helps you start the businesses of tomorrow. But another way you can do that outside of giving back financially is just staying in touch with the school. It actually doesn't take too much work. But example, like you're a friend, we could have just actually had this conversation catching up <laughs> just via yep. phone. And yep. that just, I think that goes a long way because business schools, especially, you're kind of only as strong as the network, right? If your network is tight, people catch up with each other or be able to reference, oh, you're in between jobs or you're looking to hire someone. I know someone who can do this, that, and the other. Then those are connections that help grow the pie for everybody involved and make more, even more successful alumni. I would say another way is mentorship. I think that goes a long way as well. I know I'm extremely proactive in terms of seeking mentors. I'm sure I have mentors who didn't have a choice but to be my mentor because I call them so much, you know? <laughs> so, so that's kind of the person who I am, right? But you'll get those reach outs on LinkedIn, someone who wants to explore a career in the field that you're, you're in. And I think in terms of our defining principles and culture at Berkeley, in terms of confidence without attitude and being beyond yourself, those would fall in those tenets, just like being accessible, like responding to those requests on LinkedIn, because we were all at that standpoint where we didn't know how to do DCF or we didn't know who the top investors in the world were or what industry does what and KPIs, you name it, right? So you can also get you know, refresh view. And a lot of these people are just trying to march the same path that you've taken. I like to think of it as I'm a big sports guy, right? It's almost like if you probably you're during quarantine, you may have heard of the last dance with Michael Jordan. So it's just, I think I'm big in basketball. So, you know, Bill Russell coming from Boston, Celtics fan. I feel like he helped pave the path for like MJ or some of the Will Chamberlain types. And then he paid the path for Kobe and then Kobe paid the path. So LeBron James can not only just do everything that they did, but even more. And what he's doing outside of basketball, I think is going to have far ranging implications than we've seen in sports. Yeah. And it's been absolutely fantastic and empowering. And I think as alumni, we can have that same attitude of just, yes, we got help to get to here and have a long ways to go. But helping along the way is also super important, right? Because not only the very senior people can help you, but like, the person who's just one step above you and was like, oh, I would have done this a little differently, but you're going to do this X, Y, Z. I found that to be really helpful. And I guess the other last uh, point on kind of alumni at Haas, especially and ways to give back or stay engaged other than just like calling your classmates and who you haven't seen in a while or what have you. I think with business school, especially is unique. And if you're a Haas undergrad too, because those classes get relatively small as you get older, or get further along in your curriculum is reach back out. So your professors, faculty, people you connected with on campus, check in, see how they're doing, they're people too. So 
a great example of that would be I was working on a project for work in the last year that you wouldn't see the touchy-feely stuff in finance that much, but I was a way to integrate a little bit more of a behavioral economics type survey using this uh, Keynesian economic beauty game concept, which you might re remember, leveraging Professor Don Moore, who actually just recently came out with a book called Perfectly Confident, just a small plug. <laughs> we interviewed him on the podcast. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> leveraged him and uh, Brandy Pierce, who's been fantastically helpful because she taught a class called High Impact Teams. I'm actually doing a series with her in August. Oh my gosh, she is absolutely a trailblazer, what she's doing. The downside is I've never had any of her classes, but... I'm getting to meet her now, which is, I just feel so privileged and, and fortunate to get to work with her. I completely agree. Given the whole, again, recent climate and the socioeconomic awakening, I would describe it of corporate businesses and diversity and inclusion, that even finance firms are like, we don't have any invested anything on this. They're asking me as you know, black male, like, what can we do? And I'm like, wait a minute, I didn't get to take Kelly, uh, Professor Kelly McElhaney's class. I know so much of her stuff is done really well. And had so much impact and she's an absolute rock star. She's been working on this field for a while and has several consulting engagements with Gap, sits on the board of some hedge funds in the Bay Area and VC firms and works with some large fintech companies that are implementing their DEI plan. She picked up the phone when I called, right? A student who took her classes really close with her connected us and then I was able to put my HR on the phone to connect her, even though, yes, I'd love to help more with DEI, but oftentimes the burden of diversity falls on the shoulders of employees of color, where I'm just trying to be the best investor I can possibly be. I don't want to be the black Warren Buffett. I want to be the first Jake Wamala. You know what I mean? So that's what we're trying to do. But again, I think that's what it's about. As alumni, you can, of course, give financially, but then being accessible to future students, current students, graduating students, staying in touch with your classmates, being in touch with the school, talking to professors, that helps in so many different ways. I want to segue off of what you just brought up about race in the workplace. What has your experience been like? And what are your thoughts on how we can do better as corporations? I think this was a, a relatively taboo topic, right? In the past, it's just like everyone kind of knew it was there type thing, but no one really talked about it. Politics, church, taxes. Let's also not talk about race, you know, if you want to have a good Thanksgiving dinner with family. <laughs> so, but now it's, just, it's important. It's important to be able to have those conversations, which can be very much of the time uncomfortable. And being uncomfortable is just the small cost that we pay to what is in many ways super, super atrocious and unfair or what, whatever word you'd like to describe. So in terms of my own personal experience, I'm, again, I'm super fortunate to be where I am today. I think regardless of race or gender or background or what have you, like I would describe where I am today as very fantastic. I didn't know what investing was growing up. I didn't have any investors in my family. I, didn't, I was not exposed to this. In terms of financial services, I knew the little five cent bank down the street. <laughs> That's about it, right? <laughs> I think there was a TD bank drive through on my walk to school, but that's literally about it. Financial services was way beyond in my wildest uh, imaginations outside of the Thinkorswim account that my dad had and it blew up. And I think Thinkorswim had paid hefty fine for their advertising, et cetera. From a, a personal kind of standpoint, it's something, especially when it comes to race, you can't hide that diversity. When I go into an interview, which makes it really unique is that if you have a 
non-obvious disability. You might identify as being disabled, but they might not be able to pick that up in the interview. Or if you may be like LGBTQ in terms of sexual preference or identify as something like a different alternative other than cisgendered male or something like that, you might not be able to pick that up in the interview. But as a black male or black female, for example, you just come in, right? And then you're going to have to cut my hair short. So it's just like, and I need haircuts like every two weeks approximately to look professional. And I think in some industries, they're starting to allow a little bit more alternative hair types to be presented, but in business, it's been slower along those lines. And it's just, again, when we talked about fit, it's being personable because business is not just about the numbers. It's not just quantitative, right? It's about negotiations. It's about all these things and having a high EQ is important. So I think I pick and chose what I can engage in without with being able to put aside people who have maybe different views than me that I'm passionate about, whether that's like sports was an easy one. I follow sports religiously. I mean, English Premier League, I know this is audio only, but Sean can see the... <laughs> <laughs> the LFC scarves in the background and most solid jerseys and Sadio Mane and Robert Firmino. I'm a big Liverpool fan and had them winning the you know English Premier League recently has been fantastic. It's been 30 years. Yeah. So being a Boston sports fan from the Fenway group, I know what that's like when the Red Sox won. So it just feels great. But again, I could talk about that in the office with big smiles and a lot of animation, but it's, it's then when Black History Month comes around, it's a little bit quieter. And then but I still have an appreciation for it because, again, it's just like with time, I felt like things will change. And on the flip side of this, these are obstacles. But I also benefited from what I would describe as lucky breaks. So, for example, Morgan Stanley had this diversity program they were rolling out my freshman year of college, where they're only allowing students who are from New York to join freshman internship where you pretty much know nothing, right? You're a freshman. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, just learn about financial services. And I showed up to every review session, asking them if they had jobs or something like that. And they're like, no, we only hire sophomores and juniors or really, to be honest, <laughs> and maybe not even, <laughs> but I kept calling them. And then like last minute, probably May came around and then they were like, we're piloting this new program. You've been really persistent. We heard good things about you. If you can find your own housing, you can come to New York City and do this program. <laughs> and I was like, yep, I'm there. And then I'll figure out the housing later. And that was a whole other kind of snappy, but it helped put those wheels in motion. So some people, again, took either a flyer on you or saw something in you and that benefits. So I think as with every obstacle that I've had, that I've had to achieve or overcome with regard to race or unfortunate happenings in business, there's been you know, twice as many people or opportunities that have presented themselves to help me get to the path I am today, including the last one, right, where I got a job with aerosol capital management. They only hired one person, which they interviewed at 10 top business schools, including many of them ranked around us, above us, below us, per one spot. And they hadn't hired them for years, but they said, this is a good fit. Very fortunate. And in my industry, everybody's qualified. It's just, you don't even take it personally if you don't get the call back. <laughs> because it's just like uh, the odds are not in your favor and had develop a little bit of a grit. So I guess that's a long-winded way of me responding, saying, yes, it's something I've always had to impact and then creating alliances and gravitating towards people who are willing to sponsor me, help me create a safe space that I can show my moral abilities around and then keep a straight face with around public settings or what have you. 
has been a strong benefit for me in my career. What do you think gave you that grit? I'm sure it's from your parents, your family, but also I, we totally didn't touch upon your history or just your passion for chess. And I'm really curious if that had a big impact on your personality because growing up, I was forced to play piano, to learn piano. And I didn't really have a, have a tiger mom, but she was pretty liberal actually about, about everything, except for piano. She's like, you got to practice every day. And I begrudgingly did it and I hated it for like 10 years. But after 10 years, like it just developed this grit in me. And I came to love piano and music, obviously. It reinforced in me personally that passion is a, is a whole myth. They call it the passion myth, right? That like you're born with this like passion. It's like I wasn't born passionate about piano. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I did this for 10 years. I became good at it because I put in so much time. And then I became passionate about it. Right. Because I was starting to fall in love with it. What helped you build that grit? Because that's all the examples and the stories that you just shared. And I'm sure that's like just a small sample of it all. That sheds a lot of light into Jake Wamala as a person. It's not common that when people get rejected or turned down for mentorship that they keep contacting that person, <laughs> right? No, I mean, the, you're, you nailed it right on the head. And I was hoping we were able to weave a little bit of the chess into this conversation. It's a game that I love and still love to this day. And it's played a pivotal role in my entire life. I learned chess when I was seven years old. My dad taught me how to play. I was very bad. But <laughs> it was just, <laughs> as I improved in the game, it built, I think, number one, self-confidence, which is absolutely super important for children. And I think it's immensely more important for children of color, believing that you can do something, even if you don't have any examples of that readily in your life. It's a lot easier to believe, I think. For example, Barack Obama, I think a bunch of kids today believe that's actually a possible thing. But growing up, for me, I would have never thought I could possibly be a president, right? right. <laughs> it's like, there's no way. <laughs> yeah. I, my life looks nothing like any of these guys. So I've uh, been here before. But again, the, once you start to see it, you can believe it. But even then, building up that self-motivation for chess, was just, it was huge. I can tell you a little bit more about that story because I think it's extremely important. Yeah, please do. Yeah. I learned when I was seven, I was really bad. I'd play all the time. And then my dad would take us to this chess club in Billerica on Friday nights. And the only games I won or tied was against my sister, who was like one year younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd, we'd always end up at the end of the tournament with zero points because you get one point if you win, half point if you tie, and zero points if you lose. So we'd both have zero points. And then we'd end up playing each other and like, you know, we're messing around. And then We'd go to these scholastic tournaments and I'd still pretty much lose, but most of the time I'd play adults. And it was just like, it was brutal. And of course, like you said, you don't grow up with passion for the game, just naturally sometimes. Like my dad played, so there's an already an inkling I can want to get better because you always want to kind of impress your parents or what have you. But it just, it seemed like a far-fetched goal. And then a couple of things happened that made it a really big pivotal moment. I think I was... 10 or 11, I'd go to these tournaments and I would overhear some of the chess parents or the kids. And again, chess is not a common game for people of color. So it'd be like, oftentimes me and my sister would be the only black or brown people at the tournaments. Most people were like Russian, white, or Asian, especially the good players. So your chess is taught in schools and it's a really big deal. Yeah. 
And I overheard people saying that like, oh, these kids aren't that good. They'll never be good because they're either like racially inferior or they're just not that smart. And I was just like, this is absurd. Like, no way. That's definitely not why. It's just I don't have tons of money to pay for coaches that you send your kids to and all these camps and know all the grandmasters already in your network. And I just wanted to play basketball with my friends at the park. So, <laughs> so it's just like, <laughs> this is what it is. You had other hobbies. Exactly. And then I went up to this one tournament. I think we had like five bucks. And then I asked my parents if we could buy this CD-ROM, this chess software program. And it just had, I want to say 1500 chess tactics in it. And then I was just like, okay, this is interesting. So I started using computer again technology plays a huge role in this and then the first time i go through all these tactics i want to say it takes six months to a year and then the next time i go through i'm like okay let me go through them again and then it takes like three months right and then the next time i go through all of them again and i get through the first easy ones through a breeze and then the last ones at the end are a little bit tougher but i've seen them before i'm starting to build up this pattern recognition until i keep going through the same set of 1500 problems until i can sit through and on a saturday I morning or afternoon and knock out all 1500 in a matter of five hours or six hours literally just like boom seconds per problem just recognizing building up that pattern recognition and then there'd be three different formats in terms of the way they would go through them so it wouldn't be like the same problems in a row so they'd mix them up so it's just like you literally really understand the concepts and building this crazy intuition which isn't that crazy actually because this is how you get better at things right if you just keep putting in the proverbial 10,000 hours they say that's a myth, but I, I think there's some truth to it too in some ways. But but practice makes perfect. And I just kept going through the same program all over and over again. So all of a sudden it was like a hockey stick projection. Like I started beating the people in my class, going to the chess club on Fridays, and I was one of the best players at the chess club. And I started gaining tons and tons of self-esteem. I mm-hmm. think chess also builds this executive reasoning in terms of thinking ahead, thinking about cause and effect, things along those lines. This fueled me so much. And I think from a chess career standpoint, it kind of ended abruptly when I was 16 due to some unfortunate circumstances. But then I was Massachusetts State chess co-champion. I was ranked 16th in the country, like in terms of my rating. I knew all the players who were in my age group, including some of the best players that are today who I've seen at tournaments or talked to and hung out with. It's just absolutely fascinating to me. Like Magnus Carlsen, Fabiano, Caruana, or you know, Higuru Nakamura. I mean, these guys, are like my age and they're three or four out of the best 10 players in the world are us based so this is absolutely fascinating and even though i stopped when i was 16 which i didn't think it was going to take i was going to go full-time because also around this time a lot of the players in my age group who are this good stopped going to school but yeah. i said okay let me just pour this into my academics and finance because i don't need to be the top 100 best investor in the world to make you know a decent living <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, so it's a little different calculus there but it just played a huge super role and like you said it went to grit and i think the self-teaching also helped if you just put a little bit of discipline and believing in yourself so let me just provide two or three examples of that on my personal life and I want to share these not for like boasting because of plenty of flaws, like everyone else. But I think for the kids or whoever listens to this, it's super important to me. They know that they can do anything, right? Chess gives me that self-esteem and grit that if I practice, then I'll figure it out. For example, I had, again, another lucky break in middle school. This guy named Derek, blue hair, smelled the cigarettes, would come in, volunteering from the college nearby to teach 
certain kids in my middle school a little bit more advanced math. He took us out of class and he would tell us like, okay, you guys are learning maybe pre-algebra concepts in eighth grade, but like we're all way too smart for this. Here's some more algebra concepts. And he'd come in volunteering his time. And he's just like, guys, whatever you do in high school, you can do it. Push yourself. So next year, go into high school. I failed my math entrance exam, <laughs> right? Because they were like, clearly you don't know algebra. So you're going to have to go into algebra, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I pleaded with them. I pleaded with them. Put me in Algebra 2. Please put me in Algebra 2. Somehow they were able to hear me out and put me in Algebra 2. And like that was Algebra 2 and Trig. But I was able to figure it out. And again, this starts building your confidence. And I got like a good grade in that class. And then like the next summer, it's just, you know, I got a calculus book. I checked it out from the library and read it and practiced it over the summer. The stuff that I couldn't find or understood. Googled it, tried to see it four or five different ways, and just built on the knowledge I had, and then was able to go into calculus my sophomore year and got a great grade on the AP exam. You know, another third example of that is from circling back to the business side, right? In college, again, I didn't know what finance was outside of the stock picking class I had in my dad's experience with that and the local bank tellers in my community. But then I'm hearing about this whole investment banking thing and Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and first time ever hearing about these things. And I'm like, okay, I need to learn more about what this world is because it was never exposure to me. So I actually listened and watched Bloomberg television every single day since 2008, which obviously a lot was going on there. Google, every word I didn't know, I got the Investopedia word of the day. And it was just like literally just building and building until like I could understand the daily finance jargon. So it was just like, that helped so, so much. And then things built on top of each other. And I was able to get the internship, connected with people and mentors who helped me out, prep for those interviews, whether that was upperclassmen. And then things fell my way in many of the cases. Of course, many of the cases they didn't, but kind of having that grit and like persistence helps. And none of that would have happened had you not had the grit or just that persistence to do those exercises, right? to learn, to improve yourself, to be a student always. The really interesting, important thing that I hear in your story, and I don't know if you know where you learned this, is that you're willing to take a lot of small actions that ultimately become impactful, that add up. Let's take the email example, right? Most people send two emails. Sending one email is just a small thing. But if you send like 20 emails, it adds up. If you're doing those chess exercises, you run through that exercise the CD-ROM once. That's one thing. You run through it every weekend, every other day. That's something else. And again, these are small actions. And, and I think that's a Jake Wamala theme. <laughs> it's, is that change happens in life because of these small steps. I think that's a truism. But I think many people forget about that. There's no patience. You exhibit this extreme patience, I want to say. And I think that's a really important message for listeners, is especially in times like these, is that change is not going to happen overnight. And so you got to be willing to work at whatever it is and chip away at it every single day, a little bit at a time, and setting really clear expectations that this is not going to get better. I'm not going to get better. The world's not going to get better overnight, but we still got to work at it. Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. That's very much a key tenet of my personality. That persistence, a little patience, 
also stubbornness, right? It has every with every your know, greatest strengths or your greatest weaknesses. But like, yeah. give up already, Jake. <laughs> like, wait, wait, one more try. Just one more try. It's <laughs> <laughs> very true. <laughs> so you know, but again, sometimes you get a really cool payoff, right? With a little bit of hard work or a lot of bit of hard work, and I think it says a lot, like you said. And then, of course, like with everything, okay, so you learn in investment banking. Someone doesn't respond to the email, of course, follow up, which you'll be surprised that following up is one of the most like underrated things that people just mm-hmm. never do. Yeah. And you know, my mom, she was an artist, is a really big proponent of thank you letters. And that's something that I've adapted for myself. And it's just nice. It's just nice. Like, you know, someone who appreciated the time that you spent with them or what have you, or send them a follow up email, people respond to that. So. You know, you try and get someone's contact or reach out to them and send them another one. If they don't respond, you know, obviously don't just keep blowing up their inbox. But if you can provide something of value to them, like I saw this article that I think is interesting or whatever, something engaging, then sometimes, you know, they might never respond and that's okay. You move on and find another way around the obstacles that get you to the place you want to go and don't lose sight of that. That's key. And I think that's also super important for people who may be struggling to, you know, who may have lost their jobs and who may be looking for jobs is got to keep chipping away at it and develop some grit. <laughs> and I'm so glad you shared your chess story because many people talk about their successes with a hindsight bias. If I were to take myself and tell my piano story from like age 16, people are like, this kid, he's been playing piano since six. He was probably a prodigy. I was probably the same as you. I was terrible at it. I sucked at it. Exactly. And nobody tells that story. Everyone just says, yeah, maybe I was a prodigy, you know, (laughs) (laughs) hell no. (laughs) And that's, that's where we create these fallacies, these overnight success fallacies. I'm so glad we had this conversation because even more so now, just in so many areas of life right now, people need to realize that tenacity is a skill that you build over time. It's not something you're born with. Nobody's born with tenacity. I don't believe that's a huge like nature versus nurture debate. I'm a huge nurture proponent and there's some nature aspects obviously, but I'm still a huge believer that we have free will. <laughs> we have the ability to, to change at least in ways that we can control. And not only that, I would add on to it, not even just from a philosophical standpoint, just the nature versus nurture debate. It's just such a different time. And I have so much appreciation for where we are today is that the access to information at such low bare bones cost is more perversive than it has been in the history of the world. If you want to learn something, it's just a matter of you wanting to put the time in, right? Yeah, there'll, be a, there'll be a YouTube video on how to do this. There'll be a Wikipedia article, right? That's already cold and combined and resources all at the bottom of the page from all the journals you need to. And if you're passionate about XYZ, you can learn it. If you want to be the best FIFA player online, there's so many people selling their services, so many tutorials on Twitch, YouTube, people you can watch all from your couch. It's fantastic. Where a lot of these barriers that might have been in the past where, again, you had to know someone growing up doing this or what have you, or be even just in the U.S. to do some of these activities. Some mm-hmm. of those barriers have really came down tremendously. All right. I think we covered a lot of ground today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, this has been really wonderful, Jake. I'm really glad that I met you when I met you. And I'm really glad I know you, obviously. I think this is why we get along so well. Like there are a lot of these personality traits that we share that I didn't even realize 
some of these things that I, I had until you brought it up in your story. And I, I think it's important to remind myself even now that, hey, nothing's changed. Just keep at it. Just keep at your ways, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Jake. All right. Thank you for having me. Stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the One Haas here at Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player and give us a rating or review. You can also check out more of our content on our website at onehaas.org, where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, go Bears.